You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT Advisory Council President, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I have the pleasure of speaking today with Casey Shelton of the Monuments Men and Women Foundation. Casey holds a BA in art history with minors in studio art and chemistry from Winthrop University. After graduation, she remained at her alma mater as an instructor in exhibition practices for the Winthrop University Galleries and a tutor in art history. In the fall of 2015, she joined the foundation staff after completing an internship that summer. Ms. Shelton developed the Monuments Men and Women Database, cataloging biographical information from the research files of all monuments men and women. She has headed the accessioning and cataloging of the Foundation's artifact collection and assisted in research for the eight-part investigative documentary, Hunting Nazi Treasure, which aired on History Channel Canada and Discovery's American Heroes Channel. In her nearly seven years with the foundation, she has assisted in numerous projects that have advanced the organization's mission and visibility. Her current focus is researching the many leads the foundation receives on potentially looted cultural property. Casey, welcome. Thank you so much. Just thrilled to have you here. It's wonderful. I have been so excited to talk to you. There's so much I want to know about your foundation. I attended your lecture at OLLI and researching the Monuments Men and Women Foundation in preparation for our conversation has opened up a new window into the history of World War II for me. I had absolutely no idea of the scale, the vastness, and the systematic nature of the looting that was done by the Nazis during World War II from Europe's finest museums and private collections. Can you talk to us a bit about the origin of this incredible group, the Monuments Men and Women? Sure. Thank you for having me on today. The Monuments Men and Women, so they were the MFAA, which stands for Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program. Um, Today, they're more commonly known as the Monuments Men and Women. And their origins trace back to the work of American academic groups in the early years of World War II, prior to the formation of a presidential advisory commission, which would be known as the Roberts Commission. And these two groups in particular, the American Defense Harvard Group and a committee from the ACLS, which stands for the American Council of Learned Societies, dedicated their skills and resources to identifying important cultural monuments that were endangered by the ongoing war in Europe. So when it became evident in 1942 that Allied armies were going to soon invade mainland Europe, 
these groups of scholars proposed the creation of a governmental commission that could liaise with the military forces in the theater, but also protect and preserve cultural heritage. So with that, on December 8th, 1942, uh, Chief Justice Harlan Stone wrote President Franklin Delano Roosevelt for his support. And the Roberts Commission, which officially, it's, it has a rather long official name, the American Commission for the Protection and Salvage of Artistic and Historic Monuments in War Areas, or more commonly known and easierly known as the Roberts Commission, <laughs> was authorized by President Roosevelt in June of 1943 and established a few weeks later on August 20th. So the commission worked with the War Department, serving in an advisory capacity on the appointment of the MFAA personnel and transmitting the information between the civilian academic groups in the United States and the theater personnel. So as to who the monuments men and women were, the individuals chosen for this program, many were, if not at the time, were going to become the who's who in their respective fields. And they weren't necessarily just museum professionals. There, there were museum professionals, directors, curators, but also those involved in other aspects of the humanities and the arts. You had world-famous art conservators, like such as George Stout. Um, you had directors of museums, James Rormer, who would become the director of the Met. But in addition to that, world-known artist, uh, Walker Hancock, who was a sculptor, and then everything from architects to interior designers, even some that were engineers, so some who were scientists. One monument's men, his name was Burks. He was actually an entomologist. Um, so the spectrum was quite, was quite wide in terms of these scholar soldiers and, and their backgrounds. But so they would be the ones who were sent into the field as MFAA personnel. And looking at this, this concept of, of preserving cultural heritage from a broader perspective, it's, it's the instance where the United States and its allies decided that to the victors do not belong the spoils of war, and that cultural heritage of others was to be respected and protected. And they had the full support of General Eisenhower on this. Uh, he issued orders, in fact, uh, December 29th, 1943, and this was uh, the invasion of Italy. And to quote his orders, he said, today we are fighting in a country which has contributed a great deal to our cultural inheritance, a country rich in monuments, which by their creation helped, and now in their old age, illustrate the growth of civilization, which is ours. We are bound to respect these monuments as far as war allows. So, like I said, the to the victors do not belong the spoils of war, and cultural heritage was to be respected so far as, as war allowed. Was it initially designed to protect these treasures, to protect the Allies or even the Germans from destroying them during war? I mean, or did they have an idea of the scale of the looting that was going on by the Nazis? At first, before the thousands of repositories are found at the end of the war, there were important sites that were endangered and some ultimately damaged by the bombing raids and the ground combat that followed afterwards. And when the Monuments men first entered the field, their mission was geared more towards this than the recovery efforts that would take hold at the end of the war when they find these thousands of repositories. The initial field operations were to mitigate as much damage as possible and assess temporary repairs to those structures that were already damaged. 
So at this point, you had monuments officers, and it's important to note that during these combat phases, these would have been monuments men and not women because women couldn't serve in combat roles. So you'll see monuments women enter the MFAA program during the occupation when it becomes more of a recovery effort and the restitution effort rather than mitigating the damage during combat. But you have monuments men who are armed with these lists and maps of the important cultural monuments and structures that the academic groups in the United States had drawn up. And the creation of these resources was timed to stay ahead of the advancing troops so that MFAA personnel in the theater could relay this information to commanding officers and steer them away from damaging these important sites. Not only steering them away from these sites, but also assessing the damage done and facilitating any temporary repairs that could be made. And this included posting off-limit signs to keep uh, billeting troops out of, of important structures. Thank goodness they had Eisenhower's support in all of this. Yes, very much so. Eisenhower and the other Allied commanders very much supported this concept of, of cultural preservation. You have such an amazing grasp of facts. And I know this firsthand because I've talked to you face-to-face -face before our interview with your presentation that you gave at Ollie, And you just have this grasp of the information. It's really quite impressive. I have to ask you, when did you initially become interested? What grabbed your amazing abilities to remember all of these things? So I've been interested in military history since grade school, and that's thanks to my dad, because um, he was kind of a history buff. So I followed in his footsteps. And then I took a serious interest in art history after my first trip overseas to Europe in high school. So that's when I first really started seeing European history. But I went to college with the intentions of pursuing a career in art conservation. And when a summer internship, and uh, Hence the uh, studio and chemistry minors. <laughs> I was yeah, going chemistry. To... <laughs> that one, that one impresses me. Too. I was I was going to piece together. You know, uh, art conservation is is a little bit of art history and and studio skill, but then also chemistry. So I was I was just going to piece together all the pieces. <laughs> um, but when a summer internship for a graduate school application fell through in 2015. I remember that I had seen the Monuments Men movie the year prior and oh. that there was a foundation. Okay. So I went online and sure enough, they were looking for summer interns. I applied and thinking preservation was close enough to conservation <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so uh, seven years going on, I guess, eight years this August. Um, I will have been at the foundation, yeah, for eight years this August. So I guess I just decided I would never leave. <laughs> I can't imagine a better combination with your interest in history and your interest in art. It's just made for you. It's amazing. And finding that internship was all a bit of good timing in a way. It totally changed my career trajectory, but I think it was for the better. <laughs> oh, for the better for us, without a doubt. Okay, we talked about the fact that I was blown away by the scale of the art that was looted. Could you give us an idea of that scale and the amount of artwork that's been successfully recovered and maybe even what's out there? In terms of what was looted, the figures vary. Monuments men Leslie Post uh, noted in his dissertation that as a conservative estimate, 
more than 15 million items had been removed from their original locations to repositories in the U.S. zone of occupation. Of course, it's important to remember that occupied Germany was split into four between the U.S., the U.K., France, and the Soviet Union. So post numbers are for the American zone, but the majority of the collecting points and repositories were in the U.S. zone. His estimations of restitutions from the collecting point, and he gave an estimate up to November of 1948 in his dissertation, he said that restitutions had reached like 3.4 million works of art and other cultural objects, and the bulk coming from the Offenbach Archival Depot. Um, And that collecting point was the only collecting point dedicated to archival material in Judaica. He estimated that the bulk had come from that. So by the time that you consider the fact that the monuments men, the last monuments men left Europe in 1951, when the last collecting point closed, it's estimated that some 4 million objects were returned by the monuments men and women, which is an unbelievable feat given the situation and circumstances of of Europe after a world war. It's astounding. It truly is. You also mentioned in your presentation, which was absolutely fantastic, by the way, that some of the art was actually found in the homes of the German soldiers and their families. And I was curious how the monuments men figured out which soldiers, families, and homes to look for. Did they rely on informants for that? I know in the movie, they relied a great deal on informants. So where did they find out where to look for these kinds of things? I believe the instance you're referring to from my presentation is probably Hans Frank. He was the governor general of occupied Poland. He was uh, Hitler's attorney and a high Nazi official in legal matters. And he was appointed governor general in October of 1939 when the occupation of Poland began. He, along with Hitler and Hermann Goering, coveted the Great Three, which were three paintings from the Chartorysky collection, uh, Raphael's portrait of a young man, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's lady with an ermine, and Rembrandt's Good Samaritan. And these three works were sent back and forth between Germany and Poland. And when they were in Frank's possession in Poland, they were hung in his residence in Wawel Castle. So when the Soviets moved in, their, their forces moved in on the occupied territories, Frank's offices in Krakow were evacuated first to Lower Silesia and then to Bavaria in January of 1945. So when the Allies apprehend him in Bavaria, they discover these outstanding works, except for the Raphael, which is probably the most important missing work of art. But you know, among them, the Da Vinci and the Rembrandt were taken to Bavaria with Frank, and they discovered these works and records in his office and residence. And of course, as the MFAA further unravels the Nazi theft during the occupation, interrogations are conducted, records are discovered. The Nazis kept great records that were later discovered by the Monuments Men and other allies. And it assisted them in further detention of the suspected criminals. The MFAA also had assistance from the work of the ALIU, which is the Art Looting Investigation Unit. And this was with the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. So there was some intelligence sharing and, and there were certainly, you know, as they built up these webs of networks and unraveled the theft and figured out how the Nazis had done this, kind of led them one step to one person 
and and they could build a whole web of suspected criminals. Well, I have seen the movie Monument Man, and it's enjoyed it a lot. It's a great movie. After I heard you speak, I went home and <laughs> promptly put the movie on because I hadn't seen it yet. And I know that you know Hollywood likes to do its thing and add a little of this and a little of that. So how true is this movie? The movie is based off, is loosely based off of the book written by our founder and chairman, Robert M. Etzel. And like you said, similar to other book to movie adaptations, there were changes made to suit the medium. For instance, George Clooney's character, Frank Stokes, is based off of George Stout. But there's enough similarities in these characters to the real Monuments Men that you can recognize, oh, that's Walker Hancock, James Wormer, Robert Posey, you know, Harry Etlinger, even though the names have changed. There is some truth to that aspect. But I will say uh, in regards to, it's been a while since I've seen it, <laughs> but in the film, one of the Monuments Men is killed. And that is true. There were two Monuments Men who were killed in action, one British, one American. The British officer was Major Ronald Balfour, and he was killed in moving an altarpiece in Germany, or both were killed in Germany. And then Captain Walter Hochthausen was the American monuments officer killed. So there is some truth to the death of, of monuments men in the field when they were serving. But the film brought worldwide visibility to the monuments men and women's story, and it brought it into the mainstream which has benefited our foundation and mission in honoring these heroes and continuing their mission of locating the displaced and missing cultural objects since the war. Having Hollywood shine a light on this subject certainly brings attention to it and, and furthers our mission. Yeah, I bet. It really makes a person curious. When you see the movie, you know there's got to be more to the story than what's in the movie. And it made me go to my computer and look things up. I want to read the book. Wanted to talk to you. I mean, it's just such an amazing story. It really is. Now in the movie, there were only how many, I don't know, a handful. How many were there actually, Monuments Men? So total, if you count during the combat and during the war and then during the occupation, about 350 Monuments Men and Women from 14 nations. During those initial combat phases and those months, you would have a handful of officers who were assigned to the armies that were advancing across Europe. But then once these thousands of repositories are found and, and millions of works of art and cultural objects, their numbers all of a sudden swell during the occupation because now they have the task of returning these millions of of objects. Um, and you're going to need more than just a, a handful of officers for that. So the majority of the, the individuals who served in the MFAA served during the occupational time. Yeah, it frightens me just to think of the packing and crating that must have been going on with these incredible treasures. I the, the I can't imagine the, the operations they had to run and, and how many hours they had to work in a day just from the sheer volume of, of what was being discovered and consolidated and sent to these central collecting points. Well, and some, they were in caves and old jails, old buildings and things like that, weren't they? Thank goodness there was an effort that immediately started looking for these pieces of beauty because I, don't, I can't imagine they would have survived for very long. 
they were hidden underground, you know, like you said, in, in caves and mines to protect them from bombing raids. And, and not everything, uh, a common misconception is, is everything that was recovered was stolen, and that's not the case. Um, some German museums did place their collections in repositories, offsite repositories, to protect them from the war. So the monuments men not only returned stolen objects, but also gave back and, and held in, in custody until they you know, could give them back to their uh, respective institutions. But they also kind of were the safekeepers of, of some German-owned collections that were not stolen and had just been placed in repositories for safekeeping during the war. Wow, that's an interesting facet that I had not heard before. You mentioned the women. The women were involved in the recovery effort. Were there some women in particular that were very involved? There were 27 monuments women from various nations. Uh, many were from the United States, Britain, and France. Uh, the notable woman that many, many people would know is Rose Vallon, who was the unassuming heroine of French culture during World War II. And in the film, she's a uh, Kate Blanchett's character is based off of her. So during the occupation of Paris, the Nazis had commandeered the Jeux de Palme Museum and converted it into a clearinghouse for the ERR, which was one of the Nazi art looting organizations. Uh, Jacques Jaljard, who was the director of the French National Museums, had instructed Vallon to remain at her post in the museum to spy on the Nazi theft. And the entire time, the Nazis remained unaware of the fact that she understood German, which enabled her to gather information in secrecy. So after the liberation of Paris, she agreed to turn over her information to Monuments Men Captain James Rorimer, which aided greatly in the discovery of the Neuschwanstein Castle repository in the Bavarian Alps, which held a lot of the French collections which had been looted. Mr. Etzel has been fortunate enough to have befriended three monuments women, Anne Olivier Bell, Mary Regan Quisenberry, and Motoko Fujishiro Huthway. I've been fortunate enough to have known Motoko. Anne Popham, or in Olivier Bell is what she went by later in life, but Anne Popham was a British monuments woman who served with the MFAA branch for the uh, British element of the Control Commission for Germany. And she was stationed in Bunda in Westphalia and at the divisional headquarters. She was the highest ranking female officer at headquarters and oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the office and also the British monuments men who were in the field under that headquarters. Mary Regan, who was an American monuments woman, she was part of the first graduating class of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, uh, later the WAC or the Women's Army Corps. And she actually had a, a amazing military career before she joined the MFAA. She was flown to England in 1943 and assigned to the U.S. 8th Air Force, which was under the direction of General Doolittle. And after that, she managed the headquarters of General Carl Spatz, and she was awarded the Bronze Star for that. So following the war, she became an information and reports officer at the headquarters of the MFAA in Berlin, and then she was later assigned an art intelligence research officer. So earlier we had discussed how the MFAA gathered intelligence, so they had uh, research officers, and, and Mary Regan was one. Motoko Fujishiro was a Japanese-American teenager who sought refuge in Tokyo after 
The Pearl Harbor attacks forced her family to depart the United States. Uh, she and her family were reunited with American friends during the occupation, including monuments man Langdon Warner. And through Warner, she secured a job as a clerk typist for the Arts and Monuments Division under the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers in Tokyo. So there she worked with George Stout and other monuments officers who were experts in Asiatic art. And many people don't know that there was a, a monuments operation in Asia as well. Um, by no means was it the same scale as in Europe, but there was an office. Uh, it was established by George Stout. He left Europe, took a very brief break, and went over to Japan and established this officer, uh, this office. And it, different from the European offices in the sense that there's 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 no Nazis stealing things over in this theater, but there still were monuments and historically significant structures and monuments that needed to be inspected and safeguarded during the occupation, you know, when they came in during the occupation and were able to inspect these monuments. I hear books in movies, in everything you're saying, in all of these characters. I'm like, yeah, she would make a great movie. And I want to read a book about her. What incredible people. Now, you, you, you all have something that I find so interesting. I purchased the most intriguing set of playing cards from the Monuments Men and Women Foundation. Can you describe what they're all about to our listeners? One of the focuses of the foundation is to complete the unfinished mission of returning missing art from World War II to its rightful owners. So what better way to bring visibility to the subject than creating a deck of playing cards that anybody can buy and use? And to further encourage those who may have information to come forward, we've put a cash reward of up to $25,000 for information leading to the legal recovery of these objects. And of course, it's tiered based off of the, the uh, cards. So for instance, the Ace of Spades is the most important missing work of art, which we consider to be Raphael's portrait of a young man that I had discussed earlier. And so that has a reward of $25,000 leading to information that would aid in the recovery of it. But customized playing cards have a rich history in the United States military, having been used during the Civil War, World War II, and most recently the Iraq War to bring visibility to particular missions. So this deck follows that tradition to bring visibility to some of the most important works of art that went missing during the war and whose whereabouts are still currently unknown. But the deck includes 52 works of art and two sets of historical photo albums featuring works that were confiscated and coveted by the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. The artistic cultural objects featured in this deck span the 10th through the 20th centuries and feature major European artists from various periods. And the foundation worked with heirs and claimants of these objects, as well as museums and law enforcement agencies to complete the research into the circumstances of each loss. And they are printed here in the United States by the Playing Card Company, which is the same company that prints bicycle cards. <laughs> um, so, but it was a... Um, it's a project that we're very proud of. And in addition to the cards, because you couldn't put an entire story on, on a, a card face. Uh, we have on our website, we have 
an area dedicated to uh, write-ups that expand upon the story of each work of art and the circumstances of loss. So it's it was a, um, a very large undertaking, but one that we're certainly proud of. <laughs> it must have been. It's very well done. Uh, the pictures are amazing. And then the information that's on them is really very interesting to read. Thank it you. was a nice work. It had, it had to have been a great deal of effort that went into that. It's amazing. I've actually ordered two new sets because <laughs> I thought, <laughs> <laughs> they're so cool. They're just so interesting. Well, I read a wonderful quote by Robert Edsel, who you mentioned earlier, who's the founder of the foundation. Is that correct? Yes, founder and chairman. And he spent years and millions of dollars uncovering and championing this little known group, officially known as the U.S. Army's Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section. And he said, this was the first time an army fought a war on the one hand and attempted to mitigate damage to cultural treasures at the same time. That's quite a thought. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to, to Eisenhower's quote and the, the concept of to the victor do not belong the spoils of war and that we will respect the cultural heritage of others. But it truly was an amazing feat to put this MFAA program behind that ideal. It makes me think perhaps we are becoming a bit more civilized, more than one might think it from time to time, but it gives me hope. It definitely gives me hope. I'm sure that all of the discoveries of the missing art and the return to their rightful owners are a remarkable story. I mean, each and every one of them, but are there any stories of recovery that seem to stick with you? Personally, I've always been fascinated with the story of Michelangelo's Bruges Madonna, and that was featured in the film heavily. Today, it is in the same church that it was removed from during the war, the Church of Our Lady in Bruges, Belgium. It was the only Michelangelo sculpture to be transported outside of Italy during his lifetime and is, is practically a Belgian national treasure. So at the beginning of the war, the sculpture was placed, it remained in the church and was placed in the North Isle, but was accessible. It wasn't hidden away or crated. And on the night of September 7th and the early mornings of the 8th of 1944, the Germans took it and 11 paintings from the church as they fled the town. Two German officers and armed sailors demanded entry to the church because they had orders to remove the sculpture for its protection from the approaching Americans. So the objects were removed through a small side door and loaded onto three Red Cross trucks with the Madonna actually wrapped in mattresses. And unfortunately, uh, Monuments Officer Major Ronald Balfour, who was one of the two Monuments men killed in action, arrived in Bruges just days after, just too late to prevent the theft. And the Madonna was ultimately recovered from the Altasse salt mine in Austria. And it was discovered still wrapped in the very mattresses that it was removed in. And there's, to me, it's always fascinating to see the images of them uh, evacuating the sculpture from the mine, because you can see, you can see the mattresses and you can see kind of the, the cloth that they had kind of hurriedly put on top of it to take it out. But it was one of the early token restitutions that was ordered by Eisenhower to show 
America's allies that we had good faith and good intentions in returning their cultural treasures. Bringing this to modern times, uh, there's also the restitutions that the foundation has made over its 16 years. I've been fortunate enough to have participated in two. Uh, in November of 2021, the foundation returned two 19th century Polish works on paper that had been stolen by the Nazis from the National Museum in Warsaw and taken to Fishhorn Castle in Austria. So the foundation learned of these two drawings from the daughter of a now deceased U.S. Army officer who had brought them home as reminders of his wartime experience. And a ceremony was held at the Consulate General of Poland in New York City, and then the drawings rejoined the Polish National Collection a few days later. And just this past week, the foundation returned a papal bull, which was issued by Pope Pius IX in 1862 to Italy, uh, it also was picked up by an American officer who was attached to the 5th U.S. Army and was part of the offensive push into the Po Valley in the spring of 1945. But it was truly something special to see these cultural objects return home nearly eight decades later. And, and really is a testament, I think, to our work and the, the continuation of the spirit of the monuments men and women to continue to return these objects that are still displaced. Because even though they returned some 4 million objects after the war, there's still thousands missing. Uh, for instance, uh, Poland has a database of lost art and cultural objects from, from that nation. And that alone, I believe, has over 60,000 items wow. listed. So there's still much work to be done, but it's, it's still a testament to the spirit of the monuments, men and women. It most certainly is. I mean, this is... A remarkable effort. And I find it so incredibly inspiring that even now, after 78 years, there are still dedicated men and women like you working to recover the remaining missing art. It just is such a testament to what you and the others at the Monuments Men and Women Foundation work so hard to do. And I thank you so much for all your efforts, designing the playing cards, all you do to, to get this all these little bits of information together and get the word out there so people are aware of what is still missing. And perhaps they might say, oh, that's what that is up in my attic. Oh, my great-grandfather brought that home or whatever. If that's the, if that's the case, please, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for those that are interested in learning more about, you know, the cards or our work or even the Monuments Men, I encourage them to visit our website, which is Monuments Men and women fnd.org and you'll see our latest news but also the curated information resources on the monuments men and women uh, we spent years uh, drafting bios for each and we also have some of the resources and photographs and and a bibliography if you want to read more about not only the monuments men but the nazi theft it's a, it's a fantastic site that, you know, you can spend hours looking at. You really can. You can just get lost in that site. I highly recommend it. It's very well done. And the information there is astounding. It just, it goes one layer after the other layer after the other. I mean, there is just so much there. I just appreciate so much what you do. And I thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you for having me. I've certainly uh, appreciated a uh, 
having the opportunity to come up to, to Denton to, to speak to the program, but also this podcast so we can reach more people. And like you said, you never know who might have some information or a work of art or cultural object that, that still might be displaced almost 80 years after the war. So let's hope. Well, it's been a real honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Casey Shelton of the Monuments Men and Women Foundation. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 